section four of library of the world's best literature ancient and modern volume eleven this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Vina. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 11, Section 4. Dante, 1265-1321, through 1321, by Charles Eliot Norton. Dante part one to acquire a love for the best poetry and a just understanding of it is the chief end of the study of literature for it is by means of poetry that the imagination is quickened nurtured and invigorated and it is only through the exercise of his imagination that man can live a life that is in a true sense worth living for it is the imagination which lifts him from the petty transient and physical interests that engross the greater part of his time and thoughts in self-regarding pursuits to the large permanent and spiritual interests that ennoble his nature and transform him from a solitary individual into a member of the brotherhood of the human race in the poet the imagination works more powerfully and consistently than in other men and thus qualifies him to become the teacher and inspirer of his fellows he sees men by its means more clearly than they see themselves he discloses them to themselves and reveals to them their own dim ideals he becomes the interpreter of his age to itself and not merely of his own age is he the interpreter but of man to man in all ages for change as the world may in outward aspect with the rise and fall of empires change as men may from generation to generation in knowledge belief and manners human nature remains unalterable in its elements unchanged from age to age and it is human nature under its various guises with which the great poets deal the iliad and the odyssey do not become antiquated to us the characters of shakespeare are perpetually modern homer dante shakespeare stand alone in the closeness of their relation to nature each after his own manner gives us a view of life as seen by the poetic imagination such as no other poet has given to us homer first of all poets shows us individual personages sharply defined but in the early stages of intellectual and moral development 
the first representatives of the race at its conscious entrance upon the path of progress with simple motives simple theories of existence simple and limited experience he is plain and direct in the presentation of life and in the substance no less than in the expression of his thought in shakespeare's work the individual man is no less sharply defined no less true to nature but the long procession of his personages is wholly different in effect from that of the iliad and the odyssey they have lost the simplicity of the older race they are the products of a longer and more varied experience they have become more complex and shakespeare is plain and direct neither in the substance of his thought nor in the expression of it the world has grown older and in the evolution of his nature man has become conscious of the irreconcilable paradoxes of life and more or less aware that while he is infinite in faculty he is also the quintessence of dust but there is one essential characteristic in which shakespeare and homer resemble each other as poets that they both show to us the scene of life without the interference of their own personality each simply holds the mirror up to nature and lets us see the reflection without making comment on the show if there be a lesson in it we must learn it for ourselves dante comes between the two and differs more widely from each of them than they from one another they are primarily poets he is primarily a moralist who is also a poet of homer the man and of shakespeare the man we know and need to know nothing it is only with them as poets that we are concerned but it is needful to know dante as man in order fully to appreciate him as poet he gives us his world not as reflection from an unconscious and indifferent mirror but as from a mirror that shapes and orders its reflections for a definite end beyond that of art and extraneous to it and in this lies the secret of dante's hold upon so many and so various minds he is the chief poet of man as a moral being to understand aright the work of any great poet we must know the conditions of his times but this is not enough in the case of dante we must know not only the conditions of the generation to which he belonged we must also know the specific conditions which shaped him into the man he was and differentiated him from his fellows how came he endowed with a poetic imagination which puts him in the same class with homer and shakespeare not to be content like them to give us a simple view 
of the phantasmagoria of life, but eager to use the fleeting images as instruments by which to enforce the lesson of righteousness, to set forth a theory of existence and a scheme of the universe. The question cannot be answered without a consideration of the change wrought in the life and thoughts of men in Europe by the Christian doctrine as expounded and enforced by the Roman Church, and of the simultaneous changes in outward conditions resulting from the destruction of the ancient civilization and the slow evolution of the modern world as it rose from the ruins of the old. The period which immediately preceded and followed the fall of the Roman Empire was too disorderly, confused, and broken for men during its course to be conscious of the directions in which they were treading. Century after century passed without settled institutions, without orderly language, without literature, without art. But institutions, languages, literature, and art were germinating, and before the end of the eleventh century, clear signs of a new civilization were manifest in Western Europe. The nations, distinguished by differences of race and history, were settling down within definite geographical limits. The various languages were shaping themselves for the uses of intercourse and of literature. Institutions accommodated to actual needs were growing strong. Here and there, the social order was becoming comparatively tranquil and secure. Progress once begun became rapid, and the twelfth century is one of the most splendid periods of the intellectual life of man, expressing itself in an infinite variety of noble and attractive forms. These new conditions were most strongly marked in France, in Provence at the south, and in and around the Ile de France at the north, and from both these regions a quickening influence diffused itself eastward into Italy. The conditions of Italy throughout the dark and middle ages were widely different from those of other parts of Europe. Through all the ruin and confusion of these centuries, a tradition of ancient culture and ancient power was handed down from generation to generation, strongly affecting the imagination of the Italian people. Whether recent invaders or descendants of the old population. Italy had never had a national unity and life, and the divisions of her different regions remained as wide in the later as in the earlier times. But there was one sentiment which bound all her various and conflicting elements in a common bond, which touched every Italian heart and roused every Italian imagination. The sentiment of the imperial grandeur and authority 
of Rome. Shrunken, feeble, fallen as the city was, the thought of what she had once been still occupied the fancy of the Italian people, determined their conceptions of the government of the world, and quickened within them a glow of patriotic pride. Her laws were still the main fount of whatsoever law existed for the maintenance of public and private right, the imperial dignity, however interrupted in transmission, however often assumed by foreign and barbarian conquerors, was still, to the imagination, supreme above all other earthly titles. The story of Roman deeds was known of all men. The legends of Roman heroes were the familiar tales of infancy and age. Cities that had risen since Rome fell claimed with pardonable falsehood to have had their origin from her, and their rulers adopted the designations of her consuls and her senators. The fragments of her literature that had survived the destruction of her culture were the models for the rude writers of ignorant centuries, and her language formed the basis for the new language which was gradually shaping itself in accordance with the slowly growing needs of expression. The traces of her material dominion, the ruins of her wide arc of empire, were still to be found from the far west to the farther east, and were but the types and emblems of her moral dominion in the law, the language, the customs, the traditions of the different lands. Nothing in the whole course of profane history has so affected the imaginations of men, or so influenced their destinies, as the achievements and authority of Rome. The Roman Church inherited, together with the city, the tradition of Roman dominion over the world. Ancient Rome largely shaped modern Christianity by the transmission of the idea of the authority which the empire once exerted to the church which grew up upon its ruins. The tremendous drama of Roman history displayed itself to the imagination from scene to scene, from act to act, with completeness of poetic progress and climax. First the growth, the extension, the absoluteness of material supremacy, the heathen being made the instruments of divine power for preparing the world for the revelation of the true God. Then the tragedy of Christ's death, wrought by Roman hands, and the expiation of it in the fall of the Roman imperial power, followed by the new era in which Rome again was asserting herself as mistress of the world, but now with spiritual instead of material supremacy, and with a dominion against which the gates of hell itself should not prevail. It was indeed 
not at once that this conception of the church as the inheritor of the rights of rome to the obedience of mankind took form it grew slowly and against opposition but at the end of the eleventh century through the genius of pope gregory the seventh the ideas hitherto disputed of the supreme authority of the pope within the church and of the supremacy of the church over the state were established as the accepted ecclesiastical theory and adopted as the basis of the definitely organized ecclesiastical system little more than a hundred years later at the beginning of the thirteenth century innocent the third enforced the claims of the church with a vigor and ability hardly less than that of his great predecessor maintaining openly that the pope pontifex maximus was the vicar of god upon earth this theory was the logical conclusion from a long series of historic premises and resting upon a firm foundation of dogma it was supported by the genuine belief no less than by the worldly interests and ambitions of those who profited by it the ideal it presented was at once a simple and a noble conception narrow indeed for the ignorance of men was such that only narrow conceptions in matters relating to the nature and destiny of man and the order of the universe were possible but it was a theory that offered an apparently sufficient solution of the mysteries of religion of the relation between god and man between the visible creation and the unseen world it was a theory of a material rather than a spiritual order it reduced the things of the spirit into terms of the things of the flesh it was crude it was easily comprehensible it was fitted to the mental conditions of the age the power which the church claimed and which to a large degree it exercised over the imagination and over the conduct of the middle ages was the power which belonged to its head as the earthly representative and vicegerent of god no wonder that such power was often abused and that the corruption among the ministers of the church was widespread yet in spite of abuse in spite of corruption the church was the ark of civilization the religious no less than the intellectual life of europe had revived in the eleventh and twelfth centuries and had displayed its fervor in the marvels of crusades and of church building external modes of manifesting zeal for the glory of god and ardor for personal salvation but with the progress of intelligence the spirit which had found its expression in these modes of service now in the thirteenth century in italy fired the hearts of men 
with an even more intense and far more vital flame, quickening within them sympathies which had long lain dormant, and which now at last burst into activity in efforts and sacrifices for the relief of misery, and for the bringing of all men within the fold of Christian brotherhood. St. Francis and St. Dominic, in founding their orders, and in setting an example to their brethren, only gave measure and direction to a common impulse. Yet such were the general hardness of heart and cruelty of temper which had resulted from the centuries of violence, oppression, and suffering, out of which Italy, with the rest of Europe, was slowly emerging, that the strivings of religious emotion and the efforts of humane sympathy were less powerful to bring about an improvement in social order than influences which had their root in material conditions. Chief among these was the increasing strength of the civic communities through the development of industry and of commerce. The people of the cities, united for the protection of their common interests, were gaining a sense of power. The little people, as they were called, mechanics, tradesmen, and the like, were organizing themselves and growing strong enough to compel the great to submit to the restrictions of a more or less orderly and peaceful life. In spite of the violent contentions of the great, in spite of frequent civic uproar, of war with neighbors, of impassioned party disputes, in spite of incessant interruptions of their tranquillity, many of the cities of Italy were advancing in prosperity and wealth. No one of them made more rapid and steady progress than Florence. The history of Florence during the thirteenth century is a splendid tale of civic energy and resolute self-confidence. The little city was full of eager and vigorous life. Her story abounds in picturesque incident. She had her experience of the turn of the wheel of fortune, being now at the summit of power in Tuscany, now in the depths of defeat and humiliation. The spiritual emotion, the improvement in the conditions of society, the increase of wealth, the growth in power of the cities of Italy, were naturally accompanied by a corresponding intellectual development, and the thirteenth century became for Italy what the twelfth had been for France, a period of splendid activity in the expression of her new life. Every mode of expression in literature and in the arts was sought and practiced, at first with feeble and ignorant hands, but with steady gain of mastery. At the beginning of the century, the language was a mere spoken tongue, not yet shaped for literary use. But the example of Provence was strongly felt 
at the court of the emperor frederick the second in sicily and the first half of the century was not ended before many poets were imitating in the italian tongue the poems of the troubadours form and substance were alike copied there is scarcely a single original note but the practice was of service in giving suppleness to the language in forming it for nobler uses and in opening the way for poetry which should be italian in sentiment as well as in words at the north of italy the influence of the trouvères was felt in like manner everywhere the desire for expression was manifest the spring had come the young birds had begun to twitter but no full song was yet heard love was the main theme of the poets but it had few accents of sincerity the common tone was artificial was unreal in the second half of the century new voices are heard with accents of genuine and natural feeling the poets begin to treat the old themes with more freshness and to deal with religion politics and morals as well as with love the language still possesses indeed the quality of youth it is still pliant its forms have not become stiffened by age it is fit for larger use than has yet been made of it and lies ready and waiting like a noble instrument for the hand of the master which shall draw from it its full harmonies and reveal its latent power in the service he exacts from it but it was not in poetry alone that the life of italy found expression before the invention of printing which gave to the literary arts such an advantage as secured their pre-eminence architecture sculpture and painting were hardly less important means for the expression of the ideals of the imagination and the creative energy of man the practice of them had never wholly ceased in italy but her native artists had lost the traditions of technical skill their work was rude and childish the conventional and lifeless forms of byzantine art in its decline were adopted by workmen who no longer felt the impulse and no longer possessed the capacity of original design venice and pisa early enriched by eastern commerce and with citizens both instructed and inspired by knowledge of foreign lands had begun great works of building even in the eleventh century but these works had been designed and mainly executed by masters from abroad but now the awakened soul of italy breathed new life into all the arts in its efforts at self-expression a splendid revival began the inspiring influence of france was felt in the arts of construction and design 
as it had been felt in poetry the magnificent display of the highest powers of the imagination and the intelligence in france the creation during the twelfth and early thirteenth centuries of the unrivalled productions of gothic art stimulated and quickened the growth of the native art of italy but the french forms were seldom adopted for direct imitation as the forms of provencal poetry had been the power of classic tradition was strong enough to resist their attraction the taste of italy rejected the marvels of gothic design in favor of modes of expression inherited from her own past but vivified with fresh spirit and adapted to her new requirements the inland cities as they grew rich through native industry and powerful through the organization of their citizens were stirred with rivalry to make themselves beautiful and the motives of religion no less than those of civic pride contributed to their adornment the church was the object of interest common to all piety superstition pride emulation all alike called for art in which their spirit should be embodied the imagination answered to the call the eyes of the artist were once more opened to see the beauty of life and his hand sought to reproduce it the bonds of tradition were broken the greek marble vase on the platform of the duomo at pisa taught nicola pisano the right methods of sculpture and directed him to the source of his art in the study of nature his work was a new wonder and delight and showed the way along which many followed him painting took her lesson from sculpture and before the end of the century both arts had become responsive to the demand of the time and had entered upon that course of triumph which was not to end till three centuries later chisel and brush dropped from hands enfeebled in the general decline of national vigor and incapable of resistance to the tyrannous and exclusive autocracy of the printed page but it was not only the new birth of sentiment and emotion which quickened these arts it was also the aroused curiosity of men concerning themselves their history and the earth they felt their own ignorance the vast region of the unknown which encircled with its immeasurable spaces the little tract of the known world appealed to their fancy and their spirit of enterprise with its boundless promise and its innumerable allurements to adventure learning long confined and starved in the cell of the monk was coming out into the open world and was gathering fresh stores alike from the past and the present the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of the greeks were eagerly sought 
especially in translations of aristotle translations which though imperfect indeed and disfigured by numberless misinterpretations and mistakes nevertheless contain a body of instruction invaluable as a guide and stimulant to the awakened intelligence encyclopedic compends of knowledge put at the disposition of students all that was known or fancied in the various fields of science the division between knowledge and belief was not sharply drawn and the wonders of legend and of fable were accepted with as ready a faith as the actual facts of observation and of experience travellers for gain or for adventure and missionaries for the sake of religion were venturing to lands hitherto unvisited the growth of knowledge small as it was compared with later increase widened thought and deepened life the increase of thought strengthened the faculties of the mind man becomes more truly man in proportion to what he knows and one of the most striking and characteristic features of this great century is the advance of man through increase of knowledge out of childishness towards maturity the insoluble problems which had been discussed with astonishing acuteness by the schoolmen of the preceding generation were giving place to a philosophy of more immediate application to the conduct and discipline of life the summa theologica of st thomas aquinas not only treated with incomparable logic the vexed questions of scholastic philosophy but brought all the resources of a noble and well-trained intelligence and of a fine moral sense to the study and determination of the order and government of the universe and of the nature and destiny of man the scope of learning remained indeed at the end of the century narrow in its range the little tract of truth which men had acquired lay encompassed by ignorance like a scant garden plot surrounded by a high wall but here and there the wall was broken through and paths were leading out into wider fields to be won for culture or into deserts wider still in which the wanderers should perish but as yet there was no comprehensive and philosophic grasp of the new conditions in their total significance no harmonizing of their various elements into one consistent scheme of human life no criticism of the new life as a whole for this task was required not only acquaintance with the whole range of existing knowledge by which the conceptions of men in regard to themselves and the universe were determined but also a profound view 
of the meaning of life itself, and an imaginative insight into the nature of man. A mere image of the drama of life as presented to the eye would not suffice. The meaning of it would be lost in the confusion and multiplicity of the scene. The only possible explanation and reconcilement of its aspects lay in the universal application to them of the moral law, and in the exhibition of man as a spiritual and immortal being for whom this world was but the first stage of existence. This was the task undertaken and accomplished by Dante. End of section 4